Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Sneha Pandya, a federal law clerk, who joins us to discuss her article, Debt Textualism and Creditor-on-Creditor Violence, A Modest Plea to Keep the Faith, which is forthcoming in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review and is co-authored with Eric Talley, professor of law at Columbia University. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Sneha, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. When we think about the world of high-end corporate finance, we, or maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but we might have a mental image of the New York Stock Exchange. And when we have a mental image of the New York Stock Exchange, we're probably thinking about all of the equity securities that are trading on the exchange. And perhaps we don't think as much about the enormous world of corporate debt finance. I wondered if, as part of this discussion about creditor on creditor violence in corporate debt finance, if you could just just introduce that world to the listeners and to me. Who inhabits this world? Who are the players? What are their roles? And at a high level, what are the incentives of the various players in the corporate debt finance world? Thank you for that kind introduction as well. I just wanted to note before I start talking that as a law clerk, all of these ideas are my own and Professor Talley's own and not attributable to our employers. So I think you're right. This isn't a world that we often talk about in the public view because it's often seen as a little bit further removed from the stakes of interpersonal stock buying. So I would say that the main players in this world are first companies and firms selling debt in the form of bonds, bills, and notes to raise capital. These are debtors. Second, investors buying the debt. We'll talk more about these types of investors in this conversation, but they want to stake in the return on the debt and often have varying appetites for risk. Those are the lenders or creditors and underwriters or intermediaries like investment banks. And all of these players are related by way of contracts, literally credit agreements that have simple and complicated provisions, often over the course of 100 pages or more. As you'd mentioned at a high level, the incentives here could be quite complicated, but I think their parties are incentivized to maximize their individual returns as lenders, oftentimes, especially private equity funds, asset management companies, hedge funds who might take on higher risk in the hope of getting a higher reward in the form of higher yields. But I want to note that there are also some lesser known players here. There are workers who are often paid on payroll funded by capital raised through companies selling debt, customers who might be retail investors investing in mutual funds that are themselves investing in private equity funds in these syndicated loans. And more recently, individuals with pensions whose public pension funds might also be investing in this space. Perhaps more importantly, there are also bankruptcy lawyers and transactional lawyers. If you want a slice of that, you should look at Sajith and Max Frooms' excellent reporting on the Caesars Palace coup. But I talked about this with Professor Talley in the course of drafting this article. A lot of these players are repeat players on the scene and can sometimes find themselves allying with each other, especially the creditors in a group, but also fighting against each other in the event of an impending bankruptcy or insolvency. Take Angela Gordon, for example, a private firm that comes out on top in one restructuring, the Revlon restructuring, getting a new spot in a new financing arrangement and elbowing other creditors to the back of the line, but not necessarily invited to the cool kids table in the CERTA restructuring and finding itself challenging that restructuring. Those are the creditor on creditor factions that we describe in the article. 
and they're often internal to any one credit arrangement. So they can change depending on the syndicate. That creates a shifting landscape in real time of coalitions and alliances. You use a word that we probably don't usually associate with corporate law scholarship violence to perhaps describe some of the relationships of these various actors. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationships of these actors, of creditors and creditors, of creditors and borrowers. You note that this is a repeat player game. Could you talk a little bit about how those relationships have perhaps changed over time? There seems to be a shift that you're noting in this article. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how the relationships in this world that's, as you say, removed from the public-facing equity markets, how have those relationships changed over time? And why have the various players who inhabit this world started to act in a particular way? I think that these relationships have perhaps always had some tension and frustration involved, but might have arisen in a course of mutual cooperation. So I'm thinking back to the innovations in debt markets in the 1980s and the 1990s and how the storied firm Colbert, Kravis and Roberts or KKR essentially invented the leveraged buyout using a new tool where purchasers of a company's stock would have a combination of their own money and some solicited debt finance those purchases above market rates to buy out a target firm. Initially, I think the reporting really showed that it could have been a more relational business where executives at KKR work with management and have a takeover. But I think that flipped when management or managers pushed back, perhaps didn't want to take over, didn't want to see their firm take on so much debt and potentially risk insolvency. And there, those relationships became less cooperative and a little bit more combative. I think there's always this theme of purchasers of these companies, often private equity funds, are strategizing to expand their own bottom line. And sometimes shareholders or managers are cautious in engaging with these types of companies. At the same time in the 2000s, a lot of these players saw themselves building relationships with each other to enhance their own revenue capacity, which did lead to some mutual cooperation. Um, I'm not sure if I would say that these parties liked each other, but it was beneficial for their bottom line to play nice. But as we discussed in the paper, and as has been discussed in the field largely over the past few years, this creditor-on-creditor violence or hostility, where creditors are left fighting each other in the event of a firm's distress or pending insolvency, demonstrates some sort of breakdown in that type of mutual cooperation. And oftentimes, private equity and distressed debt investors are some of the bigger disruptors of that uneasy harmony. And I think that's because these are multi-million, billion-dollar loans. There's a lot of room for tribalism and territorialism, given the amount of dollars at stake. And this is an environment built by lawyers and judges that we outline in the paper that could encourage a race to the bottom where reputational capital matters less than recovering money when a firm becomes insolvent. However, I would say that the fact that parties can show up across the V in any one litigation challenging a restructuring and be on the other side in another one, as discussed with Angela Gordon in the example of Revlon versus Serta, these incentives could change. Mutual cooperation could become more beneficial, knowing that sometimes you could be invited to be on one side and benefit from a restructuring arrangement, but other times you could really get pushed to the back of the line. So in some sense, and I talked about this with Professor Talley, this could really change the attitude of parties constantly seeing each other in the courts and thinking maybe it's going to be more beneficial for me to form an alliance or play nice in the long run. So we're living in a world today in which these players, the borrowers and lenders 
and other players are willing to act opportunistically, perhaps more so than they were in the past. Could you talk to us about some of the opportunistic plays that we might see from some of these players and what enables them to do that? What's the focus in terms of their identifying opportunities to act in ways that perhaps they wouldn't have in the past? So I think that the opportunities are really present in the scope of a contract. As I mentioned, these are players tied together by credit agreements that are quite complicated, often hundreds of pages long, which means that the contract serves as a sort of chessboard where there are moves to be made based on the rules of the contract. And lawyers representing the individual parties can find ways to navigate the contract opportunistically by scoping out loopholes, trigger provisions that could result in a lender getting a bigger slice of the pie if bankruptcy is on the horizon for the underlying firm. Because these relationships are contractual, these contracts have almost endless opportunities for interpretation, challenge, argumentation before a court. And in the drafting of these contracts, bargaining chips for the lawyers on either side to use to win out. What we discuss in the paper is a lot of opportunistic behavior often brought about by borrowers acting in their own interest, pushing creditors to ally with like creditors and fight unlike creditors to get some amount of the impending payout. This might be a hot take, but lawyers and bankers could even be the ones acting the most opportunistically here because they're hired regardless of where borrowers and creditors end up. Even if borrowers or creditors net out the same dispute after dispute, by winning some disputes and losing others. Lawyers and bankers, as Professor Talley noted to me in a conversation, make a lot of money jumping into these knife fights and coordinating them. It's basically them getting paid each time to move around a finite sum of money, which is interesting. But ultimately, it's the contract that sets the playing field for both negotiation, renegotiation, and opportunity to win out. Today, where do you see the incentives standing in the market? There is this dynamic where perhaps reputation doesn't matter as much. Of course, contracts can adjust to close some of these holes that can be exploited opportunistically. But where do you see the incentives really sitting today and perhaps the unsteady equilibrium that is the the corporate debt market? I think that the incentives today are fairly fraught. And I kind of want to talk about one example that really spawned the idea for this paper with Professor Talley. So a lot of us saw in 2020, the dispute between Citibank and Revlon's lenders when Citibank mistakenly paid out the balance of the loan remaining to Revlon's lenders of about $900 million. Some backstory here. It was on a 2016 lending agreement for about $1.8 billion that involved a syndicate acquiring Elizabeth Arden. The credit agreement was around 180 pages long, really demonstrating how complicated these can be. And in 2016, Revlon was a bit more financially stable than it would be at the beginning of the pandemic. A few years later, when Revlon showed signs of financial strain, it needed more capital to keep making its payments on this loan and to function as a business. That's when Revlon tried to make an exit exchange offer that we characterize in the paper as an up-tier transaction, though I know some folks in the restructuring space might argue against that. That would require a lot of lenders to make concessions and even a greater financial investment, but also remove financial covenants from the contract that would prohibit the transaction and use collateral as security for new debt that's issued. Borrowers in that type of 
transaction could get as many lenders as they needed for a vote of covenant removal instead of playing a game with all creditors equally to see which ones would bite and whether they could get a majority. In that type of scenario, non-participating lenders, which exist in a lot of these exit exchange offers, essentially get pushed to the back of the line and have less protections because those protections were voted out by fellow creditors. And so in Revlon, non-participating lenders got together with the threat of this exit exchange offer and tried to garner support to make everyone else vote no via mutual cooperation agreement, which won for a bit. Revlon then sought more lines of credit with term lenders that supported their original proposal and made a new majority that barely passed by a bare half of a 1%, I think is what we say in the paper. And that's when non-participating lenders sued, arguing breach, abrogation, invalid restructuring, basically saying everything was a scam. And at the end of the day, while this lawsuit was pending in 2020, Citibank, which was charged with making payments on the loan, accidentally wired over those $900 million to the lenders instead of the periodic installment payment. And when Citibank realized its mistake, which is quite literally a mistake, sending its own money over to Revlon's lenders, it called the lenders and asked for the money back. Some of them complied, but lots of them decided to keep the money for themselves and ignored Citibank's calls because they were embroiled in a battle already trying to hold their stake in line so that they could get paid out instead of getting pushed back of the line where they risked not getting paid out in the event of bankruptcy. And as we know, Revlon filed for bankruptcy last year and is slated to leave bankruptcy, I think, as of this week. This entire saga came to an end late last year when they settled and the remaining $500 million that wasn't returned was actually returned to Citibank. But I think that case really demonstrates that the incentives here are fairly fraught. If lenders felt more secure in getting their money paid out in the order that they stood in line and that the line wasn't going to change because of an exit exchange offer proposed by the borrower, Revlon, then lenders probably would have paid back the money pretty readily because they could see that it was a mistake and that Citibank, of course, would not mean to pay back the full value of the loan. But I think because of this precarity in the relationship among creditors brought on by borrowers actions, and because creditors rights come from the contract and not from fiduciary duties, except when a corporation is insolvent, arguably, these opportunities really showed that there are future outcomes and future uncertainties that incentivize creditors to pull a trigger that they might not otherwise pull. So this is the type of scenario that creates some precariousness among the creditor class. And I think that that's really indicative of how incentives are perhaps more fraught than they were at the beginning of the leverage buyout wave. At the top of the conversation, you noted some stakeholders who might be indirect players in this world, including employees of the firms that are borrowing this debt. I think that might lead us to a question that perhaps listeners might have, which is, why should we care that sophisticated financial actors are perhaps looking for ways to act opportunistically to commit creditor on creditor violence, as you call it? Does this affect you and me or society more broadly such that we should care about this as a social problem and not just a problem for creditors that find themselves on the short end of the stick in any of these potential moments? I think that's exactly right. I think it's those lesser known stakeholders that include workers, consumers or customers, the public writ large, that are actually more involved in the space than I think any one person could realize. Like I mentioned, where workers on payroll depend on companies having capital, especially in small businesses or distressed businesses with bad credit that is often financed by debt. These are real risks as to what they're going to get paid, whether there are going to be interruptions to payment. As we saw with the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, those are real questions that businesses face in real time when liquidity dries up across the system. And 
debt arrangements are a huge source of that capital. Customers also, or consumers, are often both retail investors through mutual funds that are entangled in these types of investments. And I also think on a more colloquial note, customers are the ones utilizing market choice. The bankruptcies of big name retail firms that are either targets of private equity fund takeovers to then take on even more debt and become likely insolvent or fail to raise enough capital impacts consumer choice. Think about J. Crew. I think as an average person, you see these big name companies go down or potentially have an insolvency risk and think, what am I going to do as someone who has some purchasing power in the market? And I think last, this is a market of moneymakers. These are banks, hedge funds, investment firms, private firms, private equity firms, asset management companies. There is a lot of money flowing in this market. And it's in the public interest to know how exactly the money gets made and by whom. And I'm especially concerned about people who wake up one morning to find that their pension is now being managed by Apollo Athene as a life insurance policy, and wondering if that's going to be safe in the long term, because the solvency of these firms depends on these debt arrangements. And when these firms are more and more involved in the managing of the average person's money, knowing what the economic ramifications downstream of the riskiness of these debt arrangements, which inherently increases, I think, as we argue, based on creditor and creditor violence, is really important to the average person. And so I'm someone who's really interested in the public nature of private sector engagements. And this is one link that I don't think is often made, which is that there's a lot of money at stake that actually impacts real people. When it comes to courts interpreting constitutional or statutory text, a prominent to say the least, method for interpretation is textualism. You talk in the paper about the role of textualism and how courts are interpreting debt contracts. So these are contractual documents and not constitutional or statutory documents. You talk about the role of textualism as contributing to the problem around debt opportunism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How is this different or the same from the type of textualism that we hear about in the constitutional or statutory interpretation contexts? Debt textualism, we argue, is the method of a court resolving a contractual dispute about the meaning of a term by looking to the plain meaning of the term rather than the intent of the parties. Where there's no understanding of shared intent, which in a credit agreement that involves hundreds of lenders, so it might not even be able to be divined, textualism is the interpretive method that wins. It's a goal to find some objective meaning for a disputed term by way of the prevailing plain meaning. Textualism in the constitutional and statutory context is in so many ways so similar. It's about considering the plain meaning of the text and confining possible meanings to the text itself. So it's thinking about the four corners of the document. And if provisions are left out of the document, in the debt scenario, that's a contract. But in the legal regulatory space, that's the constitution or congressional laws, then it's not contemplated to be part of this document. And I think our paper leans a bit more heavily on that latter outcome of debt textualism, which is that the exclusion of express protections for creditors implies that there's just no protection at all, that a court not seek to employ a gap-filling rule, finding the spirit or the common purpose of the agreement could be elevated through another term and apply that term instead of find that there's just no protection here. So the example that we trace throughout the paper is in Judge Ralph Winter's opinion in Sharon Steele, which is about 40 years old at this point, where he spoke to the concept of it being possible to find a term that doesn't shrink the pie, that essentially maximizes the surplus and benefit to all of the parties, as opposed to minimizing some benefit for one party and maximizing the other. 
and that being a possible role that courts can take. But we argue throughout the paper that this approach has been largely rejected in favor of debt textualism, in favor of thinking that the contract itself is finite and without an express provision granting a protection, a court is going to be loath to write one in on its own. And I think there's a risk here, which we put throughout the paper, that this type of textualism allows repeat players, like contract drafters, lawyers who are on different sides of the contract. It allows them to know that there's only one way that a contract will be interpreted when put in front of a judge, which makes it a game of loopholes, gaming outcomes, some of which are unreasonable, as we saw in Citibank. And following the Citibank opinion in the Southern District of New York that we catalog in the paper, lots of firms started to put in protections for precisely that type of scenario for where a mistaken payment is made saying that payment should be sent back. And that's a response by lawyers to the predictability of debt textualism being employed in the courts and saying, okay, now we've recognized a future outcome that's risky. We're going to contract around it. And in some ways, that's positive as far as predictability in the legal space goes. But in other ways, you can see the impossibility of this problem, which is that drafters, constitutional, statutory, contract, all of them can't possibly see every future outcome. And it's not necessarily reasonable to ask every party, and in this case, hundreds of lenders involved in these syndicated loans, to change their terms every time something goes awry, as opposed to utilize some sort of a common sense perception and rationale in contracting that the parties probably intended for everyone to benefit in some way. Let's use that term instead. So we jumped into this paper with Justice Kagan's proclamation, we're all textualists now in the constitutional and statutory context, exactly as you said, because we think that it applies here too, and perhaps is less recognized in the field because there are other interpretive methods that are often used in contracting that we argue have some room to return in the debt space as well. Are there any interventions or reforms that you and your co-author think might help address this problem of creditor-on-creditor violence going forward? Yes. And that's perhaps what I'm personally most excited about in the paper as someone who's early lawyer in practice. Reforms are the name of the game. So we propose a few. The first is to leave it to the market. Let the market fix the problem. If there is in fact a problem, if we see debt textualism as creating these unintended consequences and risky outcomes, then parties will probably respond and contract for it and perhaps even employ express terms that ask courts to fill gaps on the basis of good faith principles and read that in as an express term to the contract by requiring parties to behave consistently with their shared intent entering into the contract. That's always an option. It's not something that we've seen. And so I think we bring that up as a potential reform, but one that maybe would require a change in the legal landscape to really be utilized by these market players. The second is that courts can move along a path of almost reinterpretation. They could revive Judge Winter's conception of the duty of good faith and fair dealing in credit agreements. They could try to deter wasteful behavior on equity principles like Judge Furman did in the Southern District of New York in the Citibank case and stand up against bad faith. And they could use express terms of a contract and the contract as a whole, the four corners of the contract, as a guide to what possible gap-filling terms could be. But that's within a court's power to employ. Whether or not that would take hold, I think, is a longer question, just because courts have now cemented the use of debt textualism so much. But we catalog a few cases in that discussion where a duty of good faith and fair dealing argument in some form or another as to the interpretation of any one contractual provision in a case has survived a motion to dismiss. So there might be a judicial appetite to expand the space. The third is legislative and regulatory reforms. 
So Congress and financial regulators are tasked with considering systemic risk. And one of the arguments that we make is that the issue of debt textualism as it applies to terms in credit agreements, which often include boilerplate terms that are the same across all of these credit agreements, creates some possible systemic risk. If a court reads an express term in a particular way and negates its usage or has a less beneficial outcome for these parties contracting, then liquidity could dry up across the system because those same terms are replicated in other similar debt contracts that have a lot of money tied up in them. That, of course, is of interest to Congress and financial regulators. So they could expand agency authority to monitor debt markets via disclosure requirements. And that could meet another aim of congressional and regulatory figures, which is investor protection. So as I argued, there are a lot of investors in this space that maybe aren't considered investors, quote unquote, in the original term or institutional investors in debt markets that are individuals investing in mutual funds that invest in private equity funds or pensioners whose public pension funds are investing in private equity to get a higher return, which is growing in recent years. And they might have less insight into how these contracts work and less of an opportunity to see how these contracts work without disclosure requirements. So having more access to information on the front end for investors like that could be beneficial in policing the behavior of debt marks. And a final argument we propose is if debt textualism is so prominent and probably here to stay, we could use it for more socially beneficial or at least less wasteful outcomes. If you can't change the playing field, you can play the game a little better and bake in some socially optimal covenants because you know that they're harder to unwind. And the argument that we propose is green bonds, as opposed to green promises where shareholders are the ones in charge of the outcome. And shareholders can be fickle and change their minds a little bit more easily because debtors and creditors are bound to these contracts a bit more closely under the regime of debt textualism, green bonds could be harder to take apart, harder to back out of. So that could be a socially beneficial outcome here. Those are four reforms that we play with, all that could change the nature of debt textualism as we see it today and possibly shift the stakes here to provide for less opportunistic behavior and more beneficial behavior across the board. What closing thoughts or key takeaways do you have for listeners and readers of this paper? I'd say that this paper hopes to put an argument out into the field that there's a relationship between how these contracts are drafted and how these contracts are interpreted and how these markets function that maybe can be better explained by a term like debt textualism. By cataloging the rise of this movement among the courts alongside the rise of mergers and acquisitions as we know it in the debt context, I think we can show how this field has really been transformed and how creditor on creditor violence could have been more avoidable had other paths been taken or debt textualism not taken center stage. And there's still a chance, as we say, it's a modest proposal to keep the faith, to revive these common sense notions of good faith and fair dealing that are so crucial to contract interpretation that have really been put on the back burner because of the unique nature of debt markets. So I'd say that it's a real thought worth thinking about in how these markets work, who the players are, and how we might seek better outcomes. And I think I personally would say that thinking about the relationship between these big players, these institutional players in the debt markets, and just average people whose money is involved in these markets, but is often not thought of in this discussion, because it largely includes private players is a really important point that this paper puts forward. 
I come from a background in consumer advocacy and financial reform. And I think that debt markets could be another space where those issues are overlooked. So I'm hoping that this paper can also show that in everything we do as for me, I guess, as a budding business law scholar, but generally as business law scholars is think about the real world impacts outside of the financial space and where there might be room for reform in the public interest. Our guest today has been Sneha Pandia, a federal law clerk. We've discussed her new article, Debt Textualism and Creditor-on-Creditor Violence, a Modest Plea to Keep the Faith, which is forthcoming in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review and is co-authored with Eric Talley of Columbia University. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Sneha, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.